you know, this younger generation keeps making their way up and into the NFL and some of the older, maybe less tolerant or open-minded guys are no longer playing. So I think naturally as the years go on, this younger generation that was raised to be more accepting, you know, the locker rooms are, are, are getting more and more full of these guys. So, you know, I, I'm encouraged by that. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to former NFL offensive lineman and New England Patriot Ryan O'Callaghan, co-author with Sid Ziegler of the new book, My Life on the Line, about the experience of being closeted in regards to his sexuality while playing in the NFL and how that almost cost him his life. Now, full disclosure, My Life on the Line, which has gotten media coverage across the country, was put out on my book imprint, Edge of Sports, part of the Akashic Books Publishing Company. So I'm extremely familiar with the text because I helped edit it, and that's why I'm all the more excited to talk to Ryan O'Callaghan about the experience of going out there with the book and getting the kind of publicity that it's gotten. Also this week, I've got some choice words about the new California law, SB 206, that allows NCAA athletes in the state of California, starting in three, four years, to be able to actually market their name, image, and likeness, and what that does to the NCAA. And I've got a very special Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, especially the Just Sit Down Awards, where I'm going to talk at length about the utter destruction of Sports Illustrated, the magazine of my youth. But first, let's call Ryan O'Callaghan. The book is, and I say this with with maybe a a dap of prejudice, but the book is so raw and so damn good. Why did you decide to write it now, of all times? Why 2019? Well, honestly, I, I never planned on writing a book. When I came out publicly, I was approached with the idea, and I saw... It is a great a great way to maybe reach people who didn't originally see my story and also a way of kind of filling in the gaps because you can only say so much in an article. And also, it would be an awesome way to raise money uh, for the, the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, in the book, you're just brutally honest about issues around isolation, self-harm, psychological duress. Was, was that difficult to be public about those issues or was it cathartic? So I, I you know, I, I came out to family in 2012 and I spent a lot of time talking to professionals and, and really getting comfortable talking about these things and, and kind of understanding everything that was going on in my life. So it was it wasn't difficult to have to write about and and bring up again there are obviously some scenes in the book like where i where i described how and where i was actually going to going to execute my plan um you know things like that i don't think it, that'll ever get easy to to relive um and i definitely know it wasn't easy for family to read that part but for the most part you know it was uh it, it wasn't too difficult, and, and I was willing to to talk about those things in, in such detail, you know, with the hopes that it could help someone out and, and relate. And, you know, I, I know that that has happened. 
Yeah, I mean, so you've heard from people who have already approached you and said that the book has helped them personally? Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've heard from a lot of people. Even quite a few other athletes have, have reached out to me. Now, what about, I mean, so, so you just spoke about uh, the about the actual writing of the book. What about doing these interviews? I mean, you've done so much media since the book has come out. Has that been difficult to express some of this stuff, like on Good Morning America, for example, or uh, is it, is it actually come easy for you? Yeah. So back in the day, I never wanted to talk about myself. I couldn't stand it, but even today I don't, I don't seek out the spotlight, but I, I really try to focus on, you know, what may come of it as far as helping people out and, and getting the book out there. So it, it's, it's taken some adjusting, you know, I'm thankful for all of the media training that I went through during my time in the NFL. That's really helped out a bunch. So, you know, when I got on set at the Today Show, I wasn't, I wasn't totally shocked, but, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for the amount of attention this has gotten. Um, and it's still getting, you know, even this month there, there's still more media stuff coming out. So I'm, you know, it's only going to help other people. Yeah, I said Good Morning America it was the Today Show. I mean, can, I mean, did, did that is that a little bit surreal to be telling your story and knowing people like are eating their Honey Nut Cheerios and watching you speak about like these deep secrets and that that are now coming out into the public? You know, I, I think the best advice I ever got as far as media goes is don't think about at the time. Don't really think about how many people are watching or 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 what they're thinking. Just kind of be in the moment. And, you know, the, the, the set on the Today Show was pretty busy, but, you know, for that few minutes before I went live, I was able to sit there and chat with Al and, and mm. Dylan. And, you know, it, it's a very comfortable thing. It really is. That's awesome. I mean, I mean, it sounds more like you're, you were very comfortable because I, I think some people would be sweating through their back in such a yeah. situation. Yeah, if you want if you want to see me uncomfortable, watch me talk in front of a hundred people that are all staring at me. But no, national TV in front of however many isn't isn't bad. Now, you 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 write in the book a lot about what it was like to be closeted and playing in the NFL. Um, have you ever, as a thought experiment, thought to yourself that if you had come out as a player, what the reaction of teammates, management, fans would have been? And what do you think it would have been? Yeah, I, I you know, if, if, well, first of all, if I would have came out a long time ago, I never would have played football because it was just a cover. But if I would have came out in that last year that, that I was playing, um, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how it would have gone. I, I know the response after I did come out publicly, you know, what was that? Five years after I retired, the, the response was overwhelmingly positive from team owners and, and other guys I played with. But, you know, a lot changes in just a few years. So, um, you know, I'm under, I, I, I truly believe that now if someone were to come out, it would be totally fine and they'd be, they'd be totally accepted by their, their teammates. Um, but, you know, back in 2011, you know, I, I really don't know how, how it would have went. So you think things have changed that much, even over the last eight years, in terms of how teammates would respond uh, to an out player? Yeah, I, you know, I think there's been there's been progress. I don't know exactly how much has totally changed. There still isn't an out active player. But 
you know, this younger generation keeps making their way up and into the NFL and some of the older, maybe less tolerant or open-minded guys are no longer playing. So I think naturally as the years go on, this younger generation that was raised to be more accepting, you know, the locker rooms are, are, are getting more and more full of these guys. So, you know, I, I'm encouraged by that. And I've had the opportunity to go and speak to college teams and, and specifically talk about if you had a gay teammate, what would your concerns be? And I'm, I'm always impressed by how open-minded these guys are. And I think, I think guys are starting to understand that just because someone's gay doesn't mean they're attracted to you. And, um, you know, you, you get judged for your ability on the field, not, not who you love. Yeah, those are the old tropes about being a gay football player or, or a gay athlete. You know, you've got the, the locker room, the, the panic, and the fear of being judged that you're somehow less uh, effective an athlete because of your sexuality. Are, are you saying that you're hearing those tropes less when you speak to these younger athletes? Yeah, for, from from the straight, you know, or, or the guys who aren't out that, that I talk to in front of the teams, they, they're all for the most part, they come off as they're very open-minded and would be accepting of a, of a gay teammate. Now I speak to a lot of closeted athletes still in different sports and it's, it's hard to get someone who's deeply closeted to kind of see the potential positives. You know, everyone, everyone builds it up to something different in their own mind. You know, me, I, I was very, I mean, over the top ridiculous about how I thought people would respond, but um, you know, like I said, when you're closeted, it's, it could be scary and, and tough to actually see and believe that, that these guys who are your teammates and your friends will still accept you. But, and, and I think I've heard you say this, but closeted athletes have been coming up to you since the publication of the book or, or since the first publication of the story and tr- tried to communicate with you. Is, is that correct? Yeah. Guys on all levels and, and, you know, even retired NFL players, pro bowlers. And, um, you know, but it's it, like, like I said, everyone's experience in the closet is different. Some guys are married, you know, some people have very religious families, you know, different things to the point to of why they think they can't come out. And, you know, it, it's, I, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone just to come out. Yeah. You, know, you just have to try to talk to guys and, try to explain to them that they won't be sacrificing their career and, and point to, you know, people like, like Ken Worthy who actually benefited from coming out. I mean, he, he was the most sponsored Olympian in the last Olympics. And, you know, a lot of that was because he was openly gay. Uh, now, of course, you played f- football. Um, do you think there's something particular about football that makes coming out more difficult? Yeah, there's all the stereotypes about football being super masculine, and and which, which is true. But um, you know, the NFL specifically, once you get to that level, the challenges of coming out, I, I think, are mainly really business decisions because you have such a short amount of time to make as much money as possible, and and you dedicate your whole life to getting to that level. For someone who's closeted to come out, you know, I think they see that as potentially jeopardizing that. And if they can just, you know, hang on, play, you know, whatever, four, six, eight years and then come out, I, I think they they feel like 
you know, it, it's worth staying closeted for X amount of years more. But, you know, I, once again, I try to explain to these guys that the feeling once you come out, you know, how great you feel and just finally be able to be yourself. And, and, um, it's tough though. It, it really is tough to, to get someone to, you know, take that chance, um, obviously, or someone would have come out by now. Now you've talked about some of the reactions of people in the NFL, um, since you came out, can, can you tell for my audience who haven't looked at the book or haven't heard your interviews, can you tell the Robert Kraft story? Yeah. So after I came out publicly in, in June of 2017, Mr. Kraft was visiting Israel. He, he's a, he's a religious guy, Jewish visits Israel every year, takes team, uh, people on the team. And, um, so he tried to reach out to me when he was in Israel and found out, but he had my number from when I was still playing. So as soon as he got back to the States and got my real number or my current number, he, uh, gave me a call. We chatted a little bit, told me he was proud of me, invited me out to new England. Uh, they had just won the super bowl again. And, um, he was hosting a party in his office at Gillette stadium. Now his office is, gigantic so it, it was a very nice party and um you know everyone from mark Wahlberg to hall of fame football players were there and he took time out of that party brought me in his own private office and and chatted with me and um, gave me some of his tickets to uh, his seats and and uh it's funny he 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 likes to talk about his friend, um, Elton John, you know, everyone's got their own way of, <laughs> of trying to relate to, to the gay community. And, and that's his way. But Mr. Kraft has done a lot for the LGBTQ community from sponsoring the, the gay Super Bowl to, to the things he's done with my foundation and, and his generous donation. And, um, he was even nice enough to surprise me to take part in a ESPN special that I did. And, you know, for him to, to take time off on a Sunday to, to come do that, you know, that, that really shows how supportive he is. And, um, you know, since retiring from the Patriots, I, I've been able to have more of a friendship, if you want to call it that with him than I ever did when, when I was playing. Mm. You mentioned your foundation, the Ryan O'Callaghan Foundation. What does that do? Yeah, so I started the foundation as a way to give back to the LGBT community. You know, I, I wasn't entirely comfortable just pocketing the money from opportunities that were presented to me because of my sexuality. So I started it as a way to give scholarships and support mainly through mentorships to other LGBTQ uh, students, primarily athletes. And uh, so far so good. I, I've gotten, uh, I've gotten some companies on board like Levi's and Boston scientific. And like I said, Mr. Kraft has been, been awesome. And I have big plans, you know, all the profit, all of my profit from the book goes directly to the charity as well. So, uh, Really, we gotta gotta see how well the book sells and and things like that, and uh, hopefully, I can help you know as many student athletes who who 
or maybe relate to my story or, or just want to continue playing sports but need a little help um, as I can. Hmm. Would, would you work in football again or do you feel like that part of your life is just done? <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, obviously I, I never loved football. I just played as a cover for being gay. I, I think whatever I did do would have to um, it wouldn't be coaching or anything like that. I mean, it's no secret that I got injured a lot. My body's beat up. And, and so whatever I did do would, you know, have to take that into consideration. You know, I, I could see the NFL hiring someone uh, kind of like the MLB does with Billy Bean, kind of a liaison to go around to different clubs and and, and be a representative for the LGBTQ community. Could you see yourself you know, doing that? Yeah, it depends how much they wanted me to travel and, and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm six foot seven and, and bad back, bad, bad knees and bad shoulders. So sitting on airplanes all the time, uh, you know, I know it's just sitting there, but it oh, kills yeah. my body. So yeah. flying um, coach isn't, is not fun, no matter the size. No. And I, I, I mean, quite honestly, I, I can't fly coach very far. So I just, it would really all depend on what exactly they wanted out of me. Um, you mentioned about football being like a beard. How, how successful was that growing up? I mean, was it is it a successful beard? Is it something that, that people are just like, oh, he plays football, he's a man's man? Or, or was it sometimes uh, something that people felt like uh, looked at you side-eye about? Well, I, I never thought I could do a good enough job convincing a female that I was straight, but I knew oh. I was good enough. <laughs> I knew I was good enough at football to use that as a cover. And, and that's what I did. I mean, I, I think I was very successful at it. I mean, I never, I mean, I, well, the whole time I was playing, I, I didn't have a teammate question me. Um, the only person who did was like I talk about in the book, my best friend at the time who lived with me for seven years, who actually saw that I wasn't bringing girls home all the time or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I did a pretty good job at it. Yeah, I mean, you also talk in the book a great deal about about pain, about the pain of playing, about uh, about ways to mask that pain to play, about the harm that that happens that you know pro- that provoked. Um, I don't know if you saw the news this week, but uh, former Pro Bowler Percy Harvin spoke about using marijuana daily as a way to deal with the pain. Uh, what are your thoughts about players using marijuana and the league's policy towards cannabis? Yeah, the, the, the NFL is kind of in a tough spot because obviously it's legal in some states, a minority of the states, but federally it's still banned. So I don't think the NFL can you know, make a blanket policy right now or until the laws change federally surrounding marijuana use and you know it's it's no secret how easy it is to get marijuana anywhere you live and it's also no secret that athletes like to smoke weed so you know whether it's legal or not guys are gonna smoke you know we have a pretty good idea of when we're getting tested for street drugs and that happens once a year so you know, as soon as that's over with, you know, you got about 10 months of, of not worrying. I mean, 
and just the, the pain issue and using it for pain management. Are, are you sympathetic to players who use it in that way, or do you think that's more of just uh, their own cover for just wanting to smoke marijuana? No, it, it absolutely helps with pain, anxiety, being able to relax after a game and everything else. It's it's just one more tool that athletes and even the general public have to help combat pain. It, it's, you know, it's been in the news a lot about the dangers of opiates and how easy it is to get addicted. And you know, I, I think being able to smoke weed legally and, and have that as an alternative to popping a pill is a great thing. Um, I just, I just don't think the NFL is in a position yet where they can, they can, you know, give the green light. It might give a competitive, competitive advantage to teams like in Denver and Seattle to be yeah. able to say, "Hey, come play for us. You can smoke weed all the time." Yeah, yeah um, that, I can see that. And I, I gotta ask you, you know, you're you're a Berkeley guy. You know, that's big time college athletics. Uh, California law, you might have you've seen this, the SB 206 that allows athletes to be paid for their name, image, and likeness. So what do you think about that? And what, what, what do you think about the NCAA in general? Well, I think these colleges make a ton of money off the student athletes. And, and yeah, most of the athletes get a free education in return. But as far as my understanding of the law is – it would be individual athletes being able to get being able to get sponsors. Now there's some gray area there because there's a lot of NC2A rules about being able to have representation as far as agents and stuff. So I don't know, you know, it's kind of tricky who's going to negotiate these deals and, and um, being able to keep that separate than an actual football agent because like I said, there, there's a lot of rules. The NC2A has a ton of rules. I'm learning about that with the scholarship thing, but it, it's a it's kind of a tricky situation. But I, I think it's it's the right thing if they if a student athlete's you know able to use their their name and, and their likelihood or whatever you want to call it to to make a few bucks. You know, I'm all for it. Um, but you know, I, I think it's got to stay on the individual level because. You know, there's only a couple sports teams on each campus that actually make the money to support all of the sports. So um, as long as it's an individual thing and it stays within the person, I, I think they'll be able to do something with that. So you think it's a step in the right direction, the California law? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, the schools are just making so much off these athletes and and, and and they're using their face and name to profit. I don't know why the athlete shouldn't get some of that. Um, but I understand the other side of it, too. They're getting an education. It's amateur. And if you want to make money, make it to the next level. But I, I, don't, I don't see a problem with an athlete profiting off of his own name and face because the school's doing it. Right on. I'm getting you to comment on weed, on the NCAA. We're mo- sorry to move a little far afield, but I really wanted to gra- get your thoughts on that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, one last qu- I really do appreciate your time. One, one last question for you. Uh, like As you were doing the book and as you were processing all this, uh, my experience is that music becomes a, a good uh, source of inspiration. I mean, what kind of music do you listen to? Oh gosh, I am I am all over the place. Um, 
the presets in my car are are everything from hip hop to R and B to to electronic music. Um, I think probably one of my favorite groups growing up was Alice in Chains, but yeah, I, I, I don't. I'm not one of those people that always has music on or it sits there and listens to lyrics and tries to you know apply them to my life. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really do any of that. Right. Um. So other than uh, dealing with the book, just to give listeners an idea, what, what are you spending your days doing these days? Uh, well, my, my number one priority is taking care of my body and, and, and trying to stay healthy and manage pain because I'm not in a position where I can take pain medicine. So really it all depends on how I feel, but I'm trying to take advantage of, of the attention from the book and, and use that to raise money for my charity. That's really my priority right now. And I've, I've had quite a few opportunities, uh, mainly speaking opportunities thrown my way. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing more of that and, uh, try to reach as many people as possible at the same time, you know, raise as much money for my charity as possible. Wow. How are you managing the pain? Are you doing yoga, acupuncture, uh, anything in particular? Well, I'm going to, I'm in a position where, you know, I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm basically retired. So if I'm sore, I can lay down. Um, when I, when I do have to, for instance, go to New York, I'll make sure I go a day early because I know I'll be sore. And I, I just anticipate how I'm going to feel. And I just book days off hours off where I can know I can just lay flat and try to try to feel better right now. I, I just, uh, when I'm at home, I'll, I'll smoke, smoke marijuana now and then, but really just ibuprofen, chiropractor, and, and massage therapy. You know, I'm a big fan of maybe non-traditional things like like acupuncture and stuff like that. Um, you know, at this point, I've tried pretty much everything, and I need you know I need two shoulder replacements. Both my knees need you know to be cleaned up, and you know, once you get to a certain point you know, all the physical therapy in the world is not going to help you. So, you know, I just, uh, I do my best managing it, you know, with, with the tools I do have at my disposal. Jesus. Do you ever think a sane society wouldn't play this sport? I mean, given the physical toll <laughs> it takes on the body. Yeah. But you know, I know guys that played 15 years like Casey Wickman who, who really never got injured. So it's everyone's, everyone's different. Um, you know, I, I, I personally think the sport itself is a little silly this the whole idea of it but uh you know people have to do what they're passionate about and and i think people have a better understanding now of of the sacrifices you know you're making for your body and the impact concussions have and that's just a risk that each individual has to to weigh and decide what they want to do with it um I like to encourage people to be kickers. I, uh, <laughs> I, have a, I have a nephew in Nebraska who really wanted to play football, and I said, "Why don't you just learn to be a kicker?" Said, you might get made fun of a little bit in high school, but uh, but you know who knows where it'll take you. Well, he's now playing for Northwestern, so it's like just I tell people, just be a kicker. <laughs> you'll uh, you'll feel better, and and 
you still get to play football. Right on. The the book is My Life on the Line. Uh, Ryan O'Callaghan is the co-author along with Sid Ziegler. It's Ryan O'Callaghan's story. It's absolutely amazing. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, any last thoughts, Ryan? Anything else you want to share? Yeah, I, I think one thing I always try to try to instill on these interviews and, and when I'm talking to people is mainly to, to parents of of either LGBTQ people or parents in general, it's really just be aware of the words that are coming out of your mouth and, and really uh, be kind. Cause you know, as a child, I, I heard a lot of things out of the mouths of people I loved and looked up to. And, you know, I took all that to heart and it, it, it you know, put me in a really bad spot mentally. So I really like to encourage parents that are, that are listening and hear my story to just, really think twice about the things they say and the judgments they're making because they really they don't know if their child is gay and if they hear you saying negative things um, about gay people they're gonna think you're talking about them and and you don't know the damage you could be doing to them Mm -hmm. exactly very well put ryan thank you so much for joining us on the podcast yeah absolutely thank you so much for having me on have a good one man how you do bye We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the NCAA and this new law in California, SB 206. Okay, look, the NCAA is about as amoral a cartel as exists this side of the GOP. And it has issued all the threats. If players had the right to earn money off their names, images, and likenesses, they argue, the entire college sports system would effectively implode. They thundered this repeatedly in the direction of California Governor Gavin Newsom, but it didn't stop him from signing SB 206 which passed unanimously in the California State Senate. The bill, also known as the Fair Pay to Play Act, allows college athletes to get a cut off the profit they generate with their labor. While Newsom signed the bill, on LeBron James's HBO show no less, credit for the victory belongs to the thousands of NCAA athletes who over the years have raised their voices against this corrupt system. From former UCLA great Ed O'Bannon, who took the NCAA to court when he randomly saw his likeness in an NCAA video game, to Ramogi Huma and his organization, the National College Players Association, which has been agitating around this issue for years. Also in the trenches around this issue has been the NFL Players Association. I spoke to Demora Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA, and he said that this legislation is just the beginning. Now, the NCAA's response has been predictable. They said that the law would only bring confusion. They also made it very clear that their lawyers are coming. Now, I reached out to David West for his perspective on this. 
The recently retired 15-year NBA veteran is now the president of the Historical Basketball League, which aims to provide pay for players as well as an education and a direct challenge to the NCAA. He said, California's SB 206 is a step in the right direction for college athletes. But with that said, the legislative process has watered down this bill so that its impact will be minimally felt, if ever. I remain focused on the HBL and holistically changing the landscape of college sports so that college athletes get a truly equitable opportunity whereby they're offered compensation, education, and complete name, image, and likeness rights. And for folks who want to learn more about the Historical Basketball League and that whole plan, listen to a back issue of the Edge of Sports podcast where I interviewed David West about this at great length. I also contacted Ben Carrington, who's a professor at the University of Southern California and really one of the sharpest knives in the box around these issues. He said to me, For once, the hackneyed sports cliche is true. This is a game changer. We'll likely look back on this day, September 30th, 2019, as the moment when the unjust and inherently exploitative system that is the NCAA-controlled college sports spectacle finally began to break. We'll be ashamed and embarrassed a decade from now about how we allowed a system that exploited the sporting labor of predominantly young African-American men, they're not kids, while their surplus value went into the pockets of overwhelmingly white male coaches and athletic directors, of how they were treated differently from everyone else on campus because somehow this Victorian upper-class idea of amateurism applied to the student-athletes and the student-athletes only. As Taylor Branch famously put it, college sports in America has the whiff of the plantation, while today we saw a way off that plantation, student-athletes finally being given rights to see themselves as having collective interests and the ability to exercise control over how their images and likeness is used and to get paid to coach if they want to. This is huge. It is absolutely huge. It's also merely the beginning. Expect more states to pass similar legislation. A handful have already started the process. Expect more threats like those already issued from the athletic directors at Ohio State and Wisconsin, who said that California schools would eventually get booted out of the NCAA and that they wouldn't go to the West Coast for games. And also expect more responses like this from California State Senate member Nancy Skinner, the person who first brought this bill to the legislature. She said, We have lots of experience with threats from entrenched interests. Lots. We're the fifth largest economy in the world. We withstand those threats. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Minnesota Vikings wide receiver Stephon Diggs. And I'm not only giving it to him because he comes from the great state of Maryland and is a Maryland Terp. Stephon Diggs gets this award because he is standing up to the Minnesota Vikings and their subpar quarterback, Kirk Cousins, 
who manages to be amazing when he plays terrible teams and horrible when he plays good teams. Stefan Diggs is just not content to let his career molt uh, while he waits for the Minnesota Vikings to get a decent quarterback, and he is pushing to find his way out of this organization. And you know what? I don't even blame him. Not even a little bit. I actually think it's good when NFL players try to fight to control their own destinies, even if it makes a lot of fans and certainly a lot of people in management angry, not to mention the media. So you go, Stefan Diggs. Try to exert control over your career's destiny. A typical NFL player only plays three and a half years. You have such a limited amount of time to make your money and to get out in one piece, and he doesn't want to have that depend on the arm of Kirk Cousins. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week Sit your ass down. goes to the people who are destroying the magazine of my youth, Sports Illustrated. And I've got some words to say about this, and I want to go through them. First and foremost, and I think a lot of people who are around my age know what I'm talking about. When I was growing up, every Thursday was like its own private holiday. That's when the new issue of Sports Illustrated showed up at my door. And I would lie on my blue comforter and all the pain of early adolescence would wash away as I read the exploits of my sports heroes brought to life by just the sickest photography that's ever been put in a magazine. I also found myself gravitating to my favorite writers, no matter the article's subject. People like Frank DeFord and Ralph Wiley and E.M. Swift. As one sports journalist of my generation messaged me, we all grew up, all of us, wanting to write for Sports Illustrated. Now Sports Illustrated is being taken away from all of us in an ugly and ruthless manner. The organs of the magazine are being harvested by a private equity firm that is out for blood and taking no prisoners. Half the staff has been laid off by the new owners, a consortium of vampiric thugs called the Maven Group. The Maven cut a deal to license Sports Illustrated in June after the Meredith Corporation, the magazine's previous owner, sold the brand to Authentic Brands Group for about $110 million. According to the Washington Post, Close to 40% of the publication's editorial staff is set to be replaced by an army of low-wage freelancers, and the CIO of the SI ownership group calls it awesome. As Pulitzer Prize-winning writer David Marinus put it, the corporate dismemberment of Sports Illustrated is more than an unfortunate sports story. It is an unforgivable crime against the living legacy of literate writing. After a chaotic Thursday morning during which the layoffs were expected and then delayed, followed by a plea from three-quarters of the staff to call this deal off, the axe came in the afternoon. Deadspin reported that the Mavens, Ross Levinson, and James Heckman, two absolutely disgusting people if you dig into who they are, they were in the building to meet with the remaining staffers, but not to face those losing their jobs. Now, even through recent rocky years where there have been layoffs at Sports Illustrated, their product did not waver. And that's what's so enraging about Thursday's bloodletting. It didn't need to happen. Sports Illustrated did not have to be turned into whatever it will now become. I asked sports journalist and a person who's been a guest on this podcast, Patrick Ruby, for his reaction to the news. And this is what he said. I want to read this because this gets at the broader context that we need. He said, I think Sports Illustrated was caught by two different forces. The first is the broader shift from print to digital media and the reality that in the digital world, Google and Facebook have gobbled all the advertising money. That money isn't coming back, so there was going to be contraction to begin with. But it's the second force we need to pay attention to. It's the second force that turns a contraction into destruction. That is the fact that prestigious legacy journalism has been hit 
within the same bullshit industry, private equity, that's ravaged so much of the journalistic world. Their business model is not, let's manage a contraction, instead it's smash and grab. They are vampires bleeding these organizations dry and then selling them for parts. This is of course not limited to just journalism, it's the over-financialization of our economy. What has happened to Sports Illustrated is what has happened to this country. Patrick Ruby is absolutely right, and this kind of broader critique is a necessity for understanding what's happened to this beloved institution. It's Wall Street and private equity picking the meat off the carcasses of industries across the country. What's good for Wall Street is not what's good for working America, and it's not what's good for the third estate. You know, there's a line that Senator Bernie Sanders says when he does speeches where he makes a critique about the healthcare industry and says, we must ban private equity funds and Wall Street vulture funds from owning hospitals. In other words, it's not just journalism, and it's not just hospitals. It's every aspect of life under this free market Wall Street orthodoxy. Wall Street and private equity are destroying the institutions that we rely on, whether it's a hospital that puts patients before profits or a sports article written with care and grace that gets an awkward kid through a rough week. If we're going to reverse this trend, Wall Street and private equity will have to be brought to heel, and it won't happen with a hashtag or a tweet storm. It's going to take a serious and protracted political fight. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's show. Thank you so much to Ryan O'Callaghan for his honesty, for his words, and for his book, My Life on the Line. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening to the show. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast, please go to Apple, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, wherever you get the podcast. Leave a rating. Write a little note. All that stuff makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for listening. For everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.